How's it, Jadima? As always, it's an absolute joy to be able to stand up here and to bring you God's Word, um, to think about this amazing God of love, this amazing God of compassion that we worship. But before we, we go to, to, to look at God's Word this morning, let's go to Him now and pray. Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that uh, currently we, we, we're taking a look uh, through the Gospel of John. We're doing this over the summer. Um, but rather than go through it systematically like we would normally do when, when looking at a, a specific book of the Bible, uh, we're kind of just taking glimpses at the Gospel of John. So over the last few weeks, we've considered such subjects as spiritual blindness. Uh, we have considered the Good Shepherd. Two weeks ago, we asked the question, to believe or not to believe? And last week, Nissen asked the question, who is your father? So we've done a bit of jumping here and there. And this week, we're going to do another jump. This time, we're going to jump all the way to the very beginning of the Gospel of John. And we're going to be considering a little more the truths that we find in John chapter 1 and just how they apply to us today. And to help us to that, uh, do that, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 1 to 18. Now, this passage serves as a, a wonderful introduction or prologue to the entire Gospel of John and reveals themes that we see throughout his writing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's themes that we, we see throughout his Gospel that we, we are going to be looking at kind of repeated through today. So uh, if you do have your Bibles with you, please open up to the fourth book of the New Testament, uh, if you don't, uh, the text is also available in your bulletin or will be up on the screens. So, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So, as we consider this passage this morning, we're going to be looking at, at three points to kind of help us get a better understanding. 
So if you are taking notes, these points will really help you to, to follow along with uh, the ideas that we see here. So the first point is Jesus the Word. Secondly, we're going to be looking at Jesus the True Light. And thirdly, the Word became flesh. So Jesus the Word, Jesus the True Light, and the Word became flesh. As we look at our first point today, Jesus the Word, we are struck with a, a very familiar sentence straight away. In the beginning. Now, it's, it's not by chance that John has, has chosen to use this particular phrase. It immediately causes us to think back to Genesis, uh, you know, the passage that Mike read for us this morning. By using this phrase, John is intentionally pointing us back to this book. But why? Why the beginning? What was in the beginning? Now, the beginning in the context of this passage was absolute. It is the very start, the very beginning of all things. There was nothing except God. God was in the beginning, and from the passage that we read this morning, we were reminded of the account of creation, how God said, let there be light, and there was light, how he separated the light from the darkness. I mean, how amazing is it to think about that out of nothing, God created everything that we see today? To kind of put it in a bit of you know, human perspective, let's look at an, at an artist, for example. An artist needs paint. He needs canvas. He even needs light to create a beautiful masterpiece. Or he needs clay or, or marble to create a, a, an amazing sculpture. Even scientists today need raw materials in order to conduct the experiments that, they, that, that would lead to new discoveries. But that's not the case with God. God is the one who created those raw materials. And what's more is that he did that out of nothing. So what point is John trying to make for us here? Why the reference to the beginning? The answer to that is the word. John tells us that the word was in the beginning. That the word was with God during this time. But Not only that, John tells us that this word was God. So we get the idea that this this word is is pretty significant. But who exactly is this word? Well, we have seen glimpses of this word throughout the Old Testament. From Genesis, the word of God is connected with God's powerful work of creation. We look at Psalm 33.6. It was by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. In Isaiah 38.4, the same word of the Lord came to the prophet. And even here in verse 3 of our passage, it says that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this word clearly played a vital part in creation. Nothing was made without it. And it's been making these appearances throughout the Old Testament. This word that John is referring to, is Jesus. John tells us that all things were made through him. Now, when John, when he says all things, that includes the entire universe, pointing to the fact that except for God, nothing has existed eternally. The term made through follows the consistent pattern of scripture in saying that... God, the Father, 
carried out his creative works through the activity of the Son. This verse disproves any suggestion that the Word or the Son was somehow created. For God would have had to have done this creation by himself. And John says that nothing was made this way. For without him was not anything made. But then, what, what was the purpose of him creating all things? Psalm chapter 19 verses 1 to 2 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night pours out knowledge. God was making himself known through creation. This psalm prompted the Apostle Paul to write Romans verses one, chapter 1 verses 19 to 20. For what can be made, uh, known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So God, through his creation, has been revealing himself to us since the beginning. But that's not everything. Look at verse 4. And the life was the light of men. So not only was everything created through the word and for the word, but in him is life. The power through which all things were made is the same power that gave us life. And if this force behind creation is the same force that gave us life, then that's probably something that we should really be knowing about. And That's exactly why, as Christians, we read the Bible. Because it reveals this power. It reveals God to us. So if you're here this morning and you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would love to give you one. If after the service you just make your way out through the doors onto the left at the welcome table, we have a whole lot of Bibles there, we would love for you to take a copy of God's God's Word home with you today. Now, this life, this light that John, John tells us, shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. What does this mean? If the light is Christ, what then is the darkness? Well, firstly, the darkness is not the absence of light. It's not you know, a dark night, that dark nights when there's, there's no moon in the sky or uh, the darkness you see in a room without any windows. No, what... What this darkness is, is is sin. It's evil. It's anything that is turned away from God. And as sinful human beings, we hate the light. Because when it reveals itself to us, our true sinfulness, the true nature of our heart is exposed. And, I mean, let's be honest, none of us like to be told that we're sinful, that we're bad people. It's much easier to turn a blind eye to that business deal that might be a little shady, but you know you're going to benefit from it. Or that lie that you told your parents so that you wouldn't get into trouble. The benefits of, the, of this darkness are really appealing to us. And that's not something that we really want to give up. It's much easier, much more comforting for us to, to sit in the darkness, for us to believe that everything's okay, that we're all right. But for those who would prefer to be in the darkness, 
John gives this warning. We cannot hide forever. The light shines in the darkness, and that light reveals our sin. And our sin cannot overcome the light. No matter how much we try, we will never be able to hide our sin. We might maybe get away with it in this life, but God sees all. And we will face a judgment where we will have to stand before him and all of our sinful deeds we brought into the light and we will be judged accordingly. John uses these terms of light and dark to describe to his readers that this light, it's not only the light of creation, but ultimately it is the light of redemption as well. So up to now, we've been told by John that the word, we've been told about it and its role in creation, how God has been revealing himself to us, and how the light overcomes the darkness. And it's at this point that John introduces us to John the Baptist in verses 6 to 8. After pointing us to the light, he tells us of a man that came to bear witness about the light. This light that John has been talking about, that all might believe through him. John is very quick to remind us that John the Baptist is not the light, but only came to bear witness about that light. And these three verses serve as a wonderful reminder to us as Christians. We have already seen what God has done through his word, that he created everything. And in this section, we see that once again, something is being done through words. John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light. The question that follows on from that is, well, how? How did John come and bear witness? Simple. He spoke. As Matthew tells us in his gospel, John was telling people that they needed to repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah as he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John used his words to proclaim his message. Now, I'm sure that quite a few of you have heard the, the, the phrase, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. And the truth is, this phrase is totally misguided. And this is a prime example of why. Can you imagine if John hadn't used any words? If he just showed up on the scene, kind of dressed in camel's hair, probably smelling a little funny, eating locusts, so he probably had some legs trapped in his beard, (laughs) eating honey, and kind of just been grabbing people and dunking them into the River Jordan. Like, next, dunk. I mean, I think it's safe to say that people would have definitely gotten the wrong impression of him. He wouldn't have been there, you know, not so much there to prepare the way, but was most most likely some psycho who was just trying to drown people. No, John used his his words to bear witness about the light, this light that was coming into the world. So what does this say to us? What does this say to, to you sitting here this morning? How does this apply to us? Those of you who are cabin crew, for example, on those long haul flights, are you relying on your actions to bear witness for what you believe? Do you trust in your kindness towards the passengers that the people that you work with will see that you're actually a Christian? Or are you taking the opportunity to share your faith with them, to tell them 
about the gospel. Parents, what about you? Are you relying on the fact that you go to church every week or don't get angry at home to point your kids to Christ? Or are you taking the opportunities that you have now to share the gospel with them? Husbands, what about us? Do we just assume that because we take out the trash once in a while, that our husband, that our wives know that we love them? We need to love our wives with words as well as actions. One of the best ways for us to do that is, is pray for your wife. Pray for her. Pray with her. Shepherd her. Bathe her in the truth of Scripture. And don't just go to the motions. Don't just kind of see it as another way to check off the, that, that, that box, check off the list. Do it out of love. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, if anything is done without love, we're just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. As Christians, we are to bear witness through speaking. As we've already seen, God spoke to bear witness about himself. John spoke to bear witness about the the light that was coming into the world. And as Christians, we speak to bear witness about what Christ has done. But not only that, our actions are to back up what it is that we're saying. It's no use just going ahead and saying something and then allowing your actions to completely contradict what it is you've just said. But the reality is that all too often, we don't even get to that part of sharing. We get nervous or we get afraid. What would that person think? What are they going to do? What if I offend them? We forget that Jesus is the Word, the one through all things were made. Through all, who all things were created. He's the one who goes before us. This true light that John bore witness about is the one who gives light to everyone. Which brings us to our next point. Jesus, the true light. In the first eight verses, John has been doing a really wonderful job of building, this up, building up this idea of the word, of, of the light. He says the word is God, that everything was made through him. And for him, that this light shines in the darkness, that the darkness has not overcome it. Even at the beginning of verse 9, he tells us that this light enlightens everyone, or as some translations may say, gives light to everyone. And it's this very word, this very light that was coming into the world. Now, I don't know about you, but to me that sounds like a pretty big idea. I mean, that, that's, that's huge. This very essence of life was coming into this world. I mean, that's, John is really building up an air of expectation for his listeners or for his readers. He then goes on to tell us that the word was not just coming, but in fact, he was already in the world. That the world was made through him. So not only was the world made through him, uh, and not only was he in the world through the pre-incarnate appearances we see throughout the Old Testament, but through the fact that the world was made through him and that he was everywhere. And again, John reminds us that the world was made through the word. Yet after this, this excitement, this anticipation that John has been building up for us, he hits us with a massive blow, like a punch straight to the midsection. He tells us that despite all the evidence, the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
Now, this idea in verse 10 of the world not knowing him is not this, a, a case of dualism. You know, this notion of yin and yang, good versus evil, you know, which creates this idea that there is this evil that exists independently of God. We know that's not the case because of verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. God cannot create evil. Everything that God created was good. John clarifies verse 10 for us in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. As Glenn pointed out two weeks ago, uh, Jesus had already been in a unique relationship with the, the, the people of Israel for centuries. Yet here and now, they did not receive him. Why? If we think back to Nissen's sermon last week, or four weeks ago at least, we find the answer. It's because we are blind. We are blind spiritually. We live in the darkness of a world that is centered around man. That puts man at the center. A world that longs for man to be God. Even though God has revealed himself through creation. Even though Christ was in the world, he wasn't received. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when they ate, ate the fruit. They ate the fruit that God had commanded them not to. They rejected his rule because they thought that they knew better. We don't know him because we have rejected him. We think that we know better. We want to be under our own rule. And as we think about this idea of man being at the center of everything, do we see this playing out in our own lives today? Do we find ourselves putting our faith in an agenda rather than God? Do you find yourself praying for something that you so desperately want to happen and then end up getting frustrated or disappointed when it doesn't? Take the time to, to look at the frustration and what the reason behind it actually is. Is it because you have your heart so set on that specific agenda that it becomes what you desire most and begins to take the place of God? And the, the reality is that these desires might not even be bad things. You might be frustrated because time and again you've, you've shared the gospel with your family. You've pointed them to Christ. You've been praying for them. And up to now there still hasn't been any change. Or maybe you're frustrated because you've been, you've been praying for a baby and have been trying to get pregnant, but it hasn't happened yet. Or maybe you're single and have been praying to God for a godly spouse. Do you find yourself getting frustrated because you feel that you, the, you have kept your side of the bargain? You have done what you're supposed to do, and now it's God's turn. God's got to now keep his side of the deal. <clears throat> After all, it's what you deserve for all that you've done. Friends, the thing for us to remember is that ultimately... This man-centeredness leads to frustration and disappointment. Thinking that we have earned or that we deserve something just leads us in a downward spiral. But God-centeredness is, is different. When we shift from a man-centeredness to a God-centeredness, we find comfort because he is the one who works all things for his glory. Not because of what we have done, but because he is God. His timing becomes his agenda, not our agenda. 
from creation to sending John to bear witness about the light that was coming into the world, even into a world in which his own people do not receive him. Now, up to this point, if we were to, to leave things here in this, this world of sin, this world that has rejected the word, it would really be a hopeless end to the story of our lives. Not only that, but as we've seen over the last few weeks, there are, the, there are consequences to not receiving Christ, to not receiving the word, consequences that have a bearing on where we spend eternity. Just like the Pharisees that we've seen who rejected Christ, those who reject his rule and authority will face punishment. Which leads us to ask two specific questions. What about those who do receive him, and how then do we actually receive him? To help us answer the first question, look with me at verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, what does that mean to be a child of God? Well, for one thing, it means that we are secure. We are secure in God. If you think about it from a human perspective, no matter how hard I try, I will never stop being my father's son. I can change my name, or I can follow the ridiculous example of a 12-year-old in America a couple of years ago who actually divorced his parents and won. But that still wouldn't change the fact that I'm still physically my father's son. And as his son, I've inherited specific things from him. <clears throat> and in the same way, those of us who have received Christ, who have received the word, also inherit certain things. But this inheritance is far greater than anything this world has to offer. Far greater than any riches or reward. What we stand to inherit is an eternity with Christ, an eternity with him in heaven. Being able to see the holiness, the righteousness, the beauty of God face to face. Where we can sing along with the angels, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Where there is no more pain, no more suffering where death is dead and we reign with Christ forever. Friends, for those of us who have been given the right to be called children of God, this is what we stand to inherit. But for those of us who, who don't receive him, those who, who reject him, they also stand to receive an inheritance. But the inheritance they receive will not be from God. Because they have rejected him. As Nissen pointed out last week, they are the children of the devil. And they will receive his inheritance. An inheritance that includes an eternity of separation from God. An eternity of pain and suffering. Of dying the death that never ends. An eternity in hell. So, to answer our second question... If we are to receive Christ's inheritance, how exactly is it that we do it? How do we receive him? Look again at verse 12 and going on to verse 13. But to all those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
John tells us that receiving Christ has absolutely nothing to do with us. He says that it's not by blood. So that means it it doesn't matter uh, what family you were born into. Receiving Christ isn't determined by the fact that you were born into a Christian family. Being born into a Christian family and being raised in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. John tells us that it's not the will of the flesh. It's not our desire to receive Christ. It's not something that we specifically long for. We might long for a spouse, a better job, a nicer home, but we certainly don't long for Jesus. I mean, we just have to look around us at the world today to realize that that's the case, that the flesh does not desire to receive Christ or submit to God. Now, what the flesh desires is sin. The flesh desires that instant gratification, what it thinks will satisfy its needs now. And as we looked at earlier, the flesh desires to be rulers of our own lives. So we know that we don't receive Christ because we want to. John also tells us we don't receive him because it's the will of man or of someone else. It's not because I want someone to to become a Christian. It's not because you want someone to become a Christian. That's what's going to make them receive Christ. But at the same time, just because our will doesn't doesn't save people doesn't mean that we should, we should stop sharing the gospel or stop praying for, for our family and for our co-workers to come to know him. After all, by sharing is exactly how we bear witness. But ultimately, them receiving Christ has nothing to do with us in the sense that we pray for them, we go to the Bible with them and point them to Jesus, but the act of them actually receiving him isn't up to us. Thankfully. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why would I say thankfully? Well, could you imagine if it was actually up to us that your friends or co-workers' eternal salvation depended on how much you prayed for them or how well you shared the gospel with them? What What about parents? What if your child's salvation depended on whether or not you did enough to raise them in such a way that they would actually receive Christ. The weight of that responsibility is immense. And let's be honest, not a single one of us do enough to convert someone. We could never do enough. And the truth is, that's okay. That's not a problem. Like I said, we aren't to stop sharing the gospel. We aren't to to stop praying for people. But Thankfully, whether or not that person actually receives Jesus, whether or not that person is given the right to be called a child of God, is up to to God himself. Now, if this is your first time here today, if this is the first time hearing this message, like, like Frank said, I just want to take the opportunity to really welcome you. We are so delighted that you chose to spend your Friday morning with us rather than spend a couple hours in bed. But, you know, we'd also, we'd love to chat about you. If you have questions about what I've been saying here or what you've heard this morning, uh, some of the elders and myself will be up here after the service. We'd love to discuss these things with you. We'd love to answer any questions that you may have. But what what I want to remind you of is this. Just as you played no part in creation, just as you played no part in Christ coming into the world, 
just as you played no part in being born or choosing who your parents are, so it is that ultimately it is God's will who will receive Christ and who won't. You play no part. So what does that mean for us, for those who have received Christ? Should we be angry? After all, the world tells us that we are the ones with the right to choose. We're the ones with the right to choose what we do and what we don't do, what we do believe in and what we don't believe in. So why should this be any different? Well, for starters, the simple truth is that given the option, there's not a single one of us that would choose Christ. As we've already discussed, we want to be the rulers of our own universe. We don't want to submit to God's rule and authority. The fact that he even chooses us is amazing, despite our rebellion, despite the fact that we have rejected him. Even the, the fact that it is God's will that some of us do receive him should cause us to be humble, should cause us to rejoice, to be filled with joy, and should spur us on to share the good news with, of Christ with those around us. Because we don't know who God has chosen, who he hasn't chosen. But it's not just receiving him that is incredible. It's also that reward, that inheritance that we looked at earlier, that we, we become entitled to. Not because of us, but because of God. It is God who so loved the world that he sent his only son. Not us. So, in light of all of this, what do we know? We know that we're a sinful people who, satisfy, who seek to satisfy the desires of the flesh. We want to rule our own lives rather than to submit to God. We know that we do not choose to receive Christ. But there's still something missing. Yes, we, we choose to receive God. But having said that, knowing that we are sinful and corrupt, that God is light and we are darkness and the two cannot coexist, if he chooses us, is that it? Or is there something else that, that needs to happen in order for us to receive his inheritance? The short answer to that is yes. Repentance and faith. Which brings us to our third and final point. The word became flesh. Look with me at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John tells us that the very word through whom and for whom all things were created became flesh. He became human and lived amongst us right here on earth. John testifies to the fact that we, referring to uh, himself and the other disciples, have seen the word's glory. I mean... How amazing is that? To think about it, this, this light that created the world, that created everything, came here as a man. As dear Carson points out, that this really is the supreme revelation. It doesn't mean that the word ceased being God. As the writer of Hebrews affirms, in the past God spoke to our fathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Word, God's very self-expression, who was both with God and was God, became flesh. God chose to make himself known, finally and ultimately, in a real and historical man. As theologian Bruce notes, when the Word became flesh, God became man. Not only did he become man, but he dwelt, he lived among us. 
And John, the author, was a witness to this. He, along with the other disciples, have seen this glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Nissen gave us a great reminder of how it is that we can recognize whose children are whose on a Friday after the service. We can see attributes of the parents and the children, either physically or certain characteristics. And that's what John is referring to here. This glory, this attribute, is the kind of glory that God the Father, the kind of glory that a father grants to his son, his one and only son. And this father is God himself. So it's nothing less than God's glory that John and the others witnessed. That's what they witnessed in the Word made flesh, who was full of grace and truth. Now, this particular phrase, grace and truth, refers to God's covenant faithfulness to his people, uh, to his people Israel. What John is pointing out is that God's covenant faithfulness, his grace and truth, found its ultimate expression in his sending of his one and only Son. <clears throat> now, it's at this point in verse 15 that it would seem that John begins to digress a bit as he refers back to John the Baptist and quotes something that's said a little later in this chapter in verse 30, which, let's be honest, is in this context does seem a little bit odd. After all, as we look at it, verse 16 would flow really nicely on from verse 14. So what's the purpose of verse 15? When John the Baptist was mentioned earlier in verses 6 to 8, John the author was discussing the pre-existent light that was coming into the world. But here, we see a much more specific grounding. Not in a light as before, but rather than in an individual, an actual person. And this person was Christ. This is the one who John the Baptist had been referring to. This was Jesus. Now, following on from that, the second part of verse 15 needs to be looked at in context of the specific time. I mean, it does sound a little confusing. In this specific society, the society of Jesus' time, being older gave someone a a specific honor, kind of similar to what we have today, where those who are older, who've been around longer, you know, they, they tend to be more revered because of the wisdom that comes from being around so long. You know, they kind of, they've experienced more. They tend to be experts in their field. So it was for the people of this day. John the Baptist, for them, would have been greater than Jesus. Why? Well, because he was older. He came before Jesus. He had been preaching and teaching before Jesus was even on the scene. But when John points to Jesus and proclaims that although he comes after John, Jesus ranks before John or is greater than John, it's because John knew that this was the Christ. This was the pre-existent Son of God. So, by placing this account here, John the author is identifying Jesus as the Word. Possibly even to address some of the issues that the recipients of his letter would have been facing at the time. You know, there, there could have been some false teaching on who Christ was and who John the Baptist was. Now, like I mentioned earlier, verse 16 would really follow nicely on from verse 14. And picking up from verse 14... We notice recurring words, the words grace and truth. Now, quick Bible study tip. When you're going through a passage and you see uh, words uh, or a word repeated, uh, especially in a short space of time, chances are that the author is trying to make a specific point. 
And that's the case here as well. So in verse 14, uh, John spoke about grace and truth. Verse 16, he spoke about grace upon grace. And in verse 17, again, he spoke about grace and truth. But the question is, why? Well, we need to look at verses 16 and 17 together. Verse 17 reminds us that the law was given through Moses, that grace and truth are through Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? Does that mean that there was no grace and truth in the law? Well, as the Apostle Paul would say, by no means. The simple fact that God gave the law, which was truth to his people, was an act of grace in itself. After all, I mean, consider the Israelites' attitude uh, in being rescued, in being brought out of Egypt. After grumbling to be rescued, they were then grumbling that they had been rescued. It was grace that God didn't exact punishments immediately then and there. And he would have been just in doing so. No, God showed them grace by giving them the law, by giving his people a way to live with him. This law, however, was only a shadow of the final revelation. The final revelation that was to come, that ultimately found its fullness in Christ. He did this not because of anything they had done, but because of his grace and mercy toward them. After all, it's not like the, the Israelites brought themselves out of Egypt. And for us today, that same grace, that same mercy is shown to us through Christ. He is the fullness of that grace and truth shown to the people throughout the Old Testament. The fact that despite our sinful rebellion, God showed great to us, grace to us by sending the true light, by sending the word. God himself who became flesh, human in every single way without our sinful nature, he lived a perfect, sinless life, offered as himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. He bore the punishment that each and every one of us deserve, so that all those who would receive him, who put their faith and trust in the finished work on the cross, would receive the, word, the reward of eternal life. How can we be in the presence of God? We need to repent of our sin our sinful nature, our man-centeredness, and put our faith in the, the Word made flesh. In Christ, our atoning sacrifice, who intercedes for us on our behalf before the throne of God. This is how all those who receive Him are able to be in God's presence. We don't stand before God on our own merit. We stand on what Christ has done. And it's this message this good news that is at the heart of true Christianity. The truth that we can do absolutely nothing. And it's this truth that separates true Christianity from other religions. As Glenn mentioned earlier, today is the start of Ramadan. And I would, I would encourage you during this time to, to invite people over to your houses to, to have fellowship meals at home and you know, encourage each other and pray for each other considering that all the food courts are going to be closed. But the point's this, that during this time, Muslims across the world fast, they pray, do more and more good deeds, because they believe that during this holy month, during this time, whatever they do will somehow earn them more favor from Allah, that their rewards will be greater because of what it is that they have done. But I ask you, if this God 
that we've been hearing about this morning, that we've been singing to, that we've been praising, if he created everything by simply speaking, if this God gave each and every one of us life, if he is the one who gives us the right to become children of God by his will alone, if he has done all of this without us, how can we even begin to imagine that anything that we do could somehow earn us, a fa- earn us favor with him? I mean, let's face it. Even our most incredible accomplishments pale in comparison to something as incredible as creating the entire universe. No, it's, it's not what we can do, but what God has done. John finishes off the passage by reminding us that no one has ever seen God. Even Moses only saw uh, the afterglow of God's glory. The only God who is at the Father's side might sound a little bit odd to us, but it really does parallel beautifully with verse 1, reminding us of God's unity as God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as Christ, who is at the Father's side, has been made known to us through creation, the true light which came in the flesh and now intercedes for us. So, as we conclude, what does this mean for us? Well, John tells us that the accounts that he has written, what he has written down in his book, are done so that we would believe. God has revealed himself to us through creation so that we would believe. He sent John the Baptist to bear witness about the light coming into the world so that we would believe. And he sent his only son into into the world as flesh to die on our behalf so that anyone who would put their faith and trust in him and believe that their salvation lay in Christ's hand would know that they had a secure hope and an eternal reward. This past week I had the, the joy of attending a memorial service, uh, the memorial service of Bob Harper at our sister church, United Christian Church of Dubai. Um, and I say joy because of what a wonderful reminder it was of the hope that we have as Christians. And after the service, myself and Nikki went up to, to Bob's wife, Carolyn, uh, to pay our respects, and she kind of just gave us this big hug. I mean, she's not, a, she's not the biggest lady, and she just she wrapped her, her arms around us and with a huge smile kind of recounted uh, the last night before, before Bob passed away. And she described how he, he wrapped his arms around her, how he, she looked up at him and he had this big smile on his face. He was, his face was a glow. And how he said to her that we can do nothing. Everything is, it's, Christ, it's God who has done everything. He is the one who has defeated sin. He is the one who stands in victory. And no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Let's pray. Lord God, we stand in awe of you. Your works are mighty, and you have revealed yourself to us through them. Not only that, but you have given us your Son, our perfect sacrifice. Lord God, may our hope, our joy be in Christ, what he has done for us. Lord, may your name be magnified throughout the nations. Amen.